Festus was a master at painting pictures without a brush. He painted visual images with words. And in our text for today, we find him painting pictures of discipleship and what it takes to really follow after him. He painted these pictures for the multitudes that were walking along with him, perhaps thinking themselves to be his disciples, but not fully understanding what would be required of them if they were to truly be his disciples. And the images he painted were not rosy pictures. They were pictures of a cross, a tower, a battle, and salt. Let's see if we can't get a clearer picture of discipleship by focusing our attention on these four images of discipleship. We're in Luke, the 14th chapter. Now great multitudes were going along with him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not carry his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Now, Jesus had already publicly declared that he was on his way to Jerusalem. And the multitudes that were going along with him no doubt assumed he was heading there to establish the long-awaited Jewish kingdom. And they wanted to be a part of it. But they didn't realize that he was going to establish this kingdom through a cross, not by leading a revolution against Rome. You know, false messiahs were fairly common in the first century, and it was easy to gain a following by promising people what they wanted. But Jesus didn't want people following him with false expectations. He didn't want them turning away in disappointment when it became obvious that his goals and methods were not what they expected of a Savior. So he forced them to rethink their level of commitment to him before they went any further. And he did so by making it clear that their commitment to him and to his will would have to take precedence over anything else in their life, including their families. And he did this by declaring that unless they hated their own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, they could not be his disciples. Now, I'm certain those words were nearly as shocking to them as they are to us today. But I say nearly because they did have the advantage of understanding that he was speaking in comparative terms. He wasn't suggesting that they should actually hate their families, that they should feel animosity toward them. But what he was stating in no uncertain terms 
was that their love for him and their commitment to him would have to be so strong that their love for their family would appear as hatred in comparison. Their commitment to him would have to be stronger than any other commitment on earth. He would have to come first in their life. In fact, he would have to come before life itself. And he made that clear by stating that no one could be his disciple who did not carry his own cross and come after him. Again, they understood that better than we do. Now, we think of carrying a cross as simply carrying a burden in life. They knew that carrying your own cross meant you were on your way to your own crucifixion. He had already privately told the disciples that he was going to be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed, and that they too would have to deny self, take up their cross daily, and follow him. They would, in fact, have to lose their life for his sake if they wanted to save it. Now he's saying the same thing to the multitudes. In very graphic terms, he was telling them that if they wanted to be his disciples, they would have to die to what they wanted. They would have to die to self. He was on his way to Jerusalem to be crucified. And while a physical crucifixion might not be required of those who were following him to Jerusalem, they would have to at least crucify self if they were to be his disciples. And the same is true for us today. Now, crucifixion may not be the chosen method of execution in our society, but the cross and crucifixion still picture our willingness to die with Christ. The Apostle Paul made that clear in Romans 6, 3 through 6. Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death in order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him, that our body of sin might be done away with, that we should no longer be slaves to sin. For a disciple of Christ, being crucified is no more optional than is being baptized. If properly understood... They're the same thing. If you would be a disciple, you must take up your cross. That is the cost of discipleship. And Christ wants you to weigh the cost before you agree to a cross. Thus, the next image 
a tower. For which one of you, when he wants to build a tower, does not first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who observe it begin to ridicule him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Jesus wants us to think through our commitment before we make it. And he wants us to know the cost before we begin. He doesn't lure us in with promises like a politician seeking votes. He doesn't paint rosy pictures. He tells it like it is. And he doesn't want us to start if we don't have the resources to see it through. Now, of course, he does promise to provide us with everything we'll need as we will need it if we're committed to making it, but he still wants us to make certain that we have counted the cost before beginning. Now, beginning something and not finishing it leads to nothing but ridicule. The picture he paints is one of a vineyard keeper who decides to build a tower in the middle of his vineyard but can't finish it. He broadcasts to those who might want to steal from him that he is going to vigilantly protect his crops. He starts building a tower that will make it possible for him to keep an eye on everything. But then he runs out of money. The half-finished tower then signals that no one is watching and actually becomes an invitation to thieves. And he becomes the laughingstock of the community. It would have been far better if he had said nothing and begun nothing than to broadcast his intentions and then fail. By the same token, Jesus does not want us broadcasting our intention to make him the Lord of our life and then back out. And we discover it's going to cost us more than we counted on paying. That not only makes us look bad, it makes him look bad. Apparently, we decided he wasn't worth it. He doesn't want us getting caught up in an emotional decision about him that we have not thought through. So he not only told us it would require a cross, he cautioned us to make certain that we had the resolve to see through our decision to take up that cross. He doesn't want any unfinished towers in our life opening us and him up to unnecessary ridicule. That's not to say, however, that we shouldn't become a disciple. Before we get scared off, We better also think through the consequences of not doing so. And that brings us to the image of a battle. Or what king, when he sets out to meet another king in battle, will not first sit down and take counsel whether he is strong enough with 10,000 men to encounter the one coming against him with 20,000? Or else, 
While the other is still far away, he sends a delegation and asks terms of peace. So, therefore, no one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. You know, it's foolish to enter into a hopeless battle. Any good commander-in-chief will carefully estimate the strength of an enemy before deciding on a course of action. If he's got you outnumbered two to one, and you don't have anything that might equalize the equation, like the promise of God's intervention or a secret weapon, you don't go into battle. You seek terms of peace. And if you decide you can live with them, You accept them. The same is true in our relationship with the Lord. Now, someday, the King of Kings and Lord of Lords is coming with the armies of heaven. He will smite the nation with a sharp sword and tread the winepress of the fierce wrath of God. Those who war against him And any whose name is not found in the book of life will be thrown alive into the lake of fire. There's no way we can win a battle against the Lord. So we better get right with him before the battle begins. We better discover his conditions of surrender. And we better accept his terms of peace. Before it's too late. The offer's been made. And he's made it clear that it's his desire that we all accept it. The terms, however, are not easy to accept. The terms of peace are the same that Jesus stated when painting a picture of a cross. He's got to come first. In this image, however, he uses battle language. Unconditional surrender is what he demands. No one of you can be my disciple who does not give up all his own possessions. That's the condition. There can be no holding back. Everything must be given to him. Now, that does not mean... We have to get rid of all our possessions. He will tell the rich young ruler to sell all he possesses and to distribute it to the poor. But I don't think that is what he is here demanding of all who would be his disciples. He's simply requiring that we give up ownership of our possessions. That we surrender ownership to him. That as our conquering king, he has a sovereign right to everything we once held as our own. By accepting him as our Lord, we willingly acknowledge his ownership of everything. And accept the role of steward of his possession. Now, he graciously allows us to enjoy his possessions, but he expects us to do so in a way that honors him. 
And as we've noted before, we do that symbolically by tithing, by actually giving 10% of our income to kingdom work. That does not, however, mean that 90% belongs to us. It all belongs to him. And he holds us accountable for what we do with everything that belongs to him. He expects us to use all he has entrusted to us to bring a spiritual flavor and a sense of eternity to life. And that brings us to the final image of discipleship that he painted for the multitudes on this occasion. Therefore, salt is good. But if even salt has become tasteless, with what will it be seasoned? It is useless, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown out. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Our Lord expects us be salt in the world. In fact, in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, we are the salt of the earth. Now, we seldom think of the value of salt today because it's so common. In fact, those who have high blood pressure are constantly trying to reduce their salt intake. The chloride and sodium, the major components of salt, are necessary for the survival of all known living creatures. And I bet you can guess where I found that little tidbit of information. <laughs> now, salt has been highly valued throughout history. Cities were founded where it could be harvested, and trade routes were established to get it from city to city. Wars were provoked and financed by salt. Until the 1880s, salt was the only way to preserve food. And it's one of the basic tastes that excite our taste buds. So when Jesus says we are to be the salt of the earth, he's saying that his disciples are expected to ask as a flavoring and preserving element in society. And they only have value to him if they do their job. Salt that loses its saltiness is good for nothing. It doesn't even add anything of value to a manure pile. That's an image. Now, how does salt lose its saltiness? Obviously, pure salt cannot. But if the salt leaches out of a substance, leaving only impurities behind, it can no longer do what it was intended to do. And if we have become insipid and tasteless, we are no longer doing what Christ intends for us to do. That's why Paul tells us in Colossians 4, 5 and 6. Conduct yourselves with wisdom toward outsiders, making the most of the opportunity. Let your speech always be 
with grace, seasoned, as it were, with salt, so that you may know how you should respond to each person. We will say and do those things that help preserve a moral and just society. If our life and our speech is seasoned with the salt of God's Spirit. We will be of immense value to our Lord if we will add that divine flavor to life itself. If we would be disciples of Christ, He would have us focus on four images that will keep us on track. Cross, the tower, the battle, and salt. And all four of them speak of the need to surrender our all to the one we claimed to be following. He who has ears to hear, let him hear.